Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Are you guys ready for the Word of God? Amen. Now listen, I know last week was a tough message to hear. So I want to say again this morning that whatever your viewpoint is on when the rapture will occur, we can still love one another. We can still be in fellowship with one another. As I said last week, the rapture is not an essential doctrine for salvation. So we can still have unity even if we disagree. Regardless of the timing of Jesus' return, the absolute clear message from the Bible is that we must be ready. My heart is for everyone to be prepared regardless of when Jesus returns. But we have an enemy who wants us to be unprepared. And he'll use any means available to him to ensure that happens, whether it's distraction, deception, or even division. So please, don't be waiting for an escape instead of preparing for endurance. Let's pray. God, we invite you here. We want to see your presence. We want to feel your presence. We want to hear the word of God. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So welcome to week two in our basic training message series. Week two, spiritual warfare boot camp. You guys ready? Okay. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 10 through 12 together first. You don't have a Bible. We've got Bibles here right on the bookshelf, right to my right, your left. Or you can follow along up on the screen. You can follow along on your mobile device. But I want to encourage you to please follow along and read the Word of God as we go through this together. You'll get a lot more out of it if you do that. So Paul says here, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now we're going to come back and study the whole armor of God next week, but today's focus is to know your enemy. We've got to know our enemy. And Paul specifically names who that is right here in our text. He tells us who our enemy is. It's the devil. That is our chief enemy. He has many names in the Bible. Lucifer, Satan, the great dragon, the serpent, the wicked one, the evil one, your adversary, the tempter, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren, God of this world, prince of the power of the air, Beelzebub, the chief of the devils, liar, murderer, and thief. But whatever his name, he is our chief enemy. Our enemy is not your annoying neighbor. It's not your boss. It's not whatever political figure that you dislike. It's not the person who hurt you. It's not the person who disagrees with you. It's not the unbeliever. It's not people who live a lifestyle that you are against. It's not the drunk driver who takes your child. It's not cancer or any other debilitating disease. No, our chief enemy is the devil. Exactly who Paul calls out specifically in this text. This is the first thing that Paul does before telling us how to engage in spiritual warfare. He specifically names the leader of the enemy army, the general, the king of that army. And Satan has declared war on the people of God. 
And the only way that we can counteract his attacks is by knowing him and knowing his ways. So the first thing that we've got to understand about our enemy is that he is spiritual. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The next thing that we've got to know here about our enemy is that he has many allies. You've got your hand out. You can put that in your blank. He has many allies. Verse 12 of our text says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's plural. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, there are some who look at this list, and then they attempt to suggest what each of these mean. But here's the real point you need for today. Satan has an entire army. He's not alone. He leads an entire army of evil beings known as demons. Whatever their rank, power, authority, or capabilities are, what we all need to know is that Satan is the leader, and he has a vast army of foot soldiers. And they are all out to do combat against God and God's people. Satan and his army use many tactics. When Paul says we stand against the wiles of the devil, that word wiles there stands for schemes, cunningness, or craftiness, meaning Satan is a schemer. He's a schemer. He will use any tactic or strategy that he possibly can to defeat us, whether it's outright lies, truth mixed with lies, temptation, false doctrine, division, distraction, discouragement, depression, whatever it is, just know that our enemy's goal is to destroy you. When Paul uses the word wrestle, he is describing the kind of warfare that we all are engaged in. It's hand-to-hand combat, which means we are up close and personal with our enemy. His absolute goal is our destruction. This is the enemy that we need to know. Now, one caution I want to mention before we get too deep today. It's good for us to know our enemy so we can understand his tactics and be better prepared to defeat those tactics. But I do want to warn you that while it's good to know our enemy, we, do not, we need to be careful that we don't become obsessed with him. We cannot become obsessed with him because if we do that, we put ourselves in very dangerous territory. Satan is so evil that if you pay too much attention to him and by studying him, you could become like him. And the Bible says we are to think about whatever is good and true and holy and pure and lovely. So yes, we need to know our enemy, but we need to know our Savior even more. He's the one we serve, and he's the one who's already defeated our enemy. Today I want to begin our journey of preparation together by talking about who our enemy is, why he's our enemy, and the tactics and authority and power that he uses. Satan is not a silly cartoon character who has a pointy tail, horns, and a pitchfork while wearing a red suit. That's been one of the most common depictions of him in our culture. But what does the Bible say? We ought to ask that question all the time. What does the Bible say? The world's going to tell you this, but we've got to check it against what does the Bible say. So here we go. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So the first thing that we need to see here about Satan is that he is fallen from heaven. He's fallen from heaven. He was with God in heaven, but now he is fallen. Lucifer means shining one or morning star. It's the name attributed to Satan before his fall when he was an angel. And what's interesting here is if you contrast this with what Jesus, what they say about Jesus in the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16, where it describes Jesus as the bright and morning star. So you've got Satan, Lucifer, meaning what? What do we say that meant? It means morning star or shining one. You have Jesus in Revelation who is the bright and mining, uh, shining star. And so right here in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14, we see Satan's most basic strategy as an imitator. He's an imitator. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, he's an imitator. Also, his five I will statements that he said in his heart, that reveals the depth of his pride, his rebellion, and his self-sufficiency. Now, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17, gives us some additional insight into who he is. It says here, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. We see from this text, Satan is a created being. He is a created being. And not just any created being, he was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. In other words, he was flawless. He had no defects or shortcomings. He was perfect. And verse 15 says that he was also perfect in his ways, meaning he was blameless. So not only was his appearance perfect, so was his behavior. He had no sin. And then if you look at verse 14, we also see that he was the, the anointed cherub. The anointed cherub. Cherubim are angelic beings who were always in the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 37, verse 16, and Psalm 99, verse 1, both indicate that God is enthroned in heaven between the cherubim. Also, it was two cherubim made from gold that were placed on the Ark of the Covenant. You guys might know from reading your Bibles, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence. 
right? The Ten Commandments that God had written, Moses put those inside the ark, and there was a mercy seat on top, and there was a carved golden cherub on either side. Their wings covered. They covered the mercy seat. And then in Ezekiel's visions, especially in chapter 10, whatever the glory of God was, wherever it was, so were the cherubim. The point is that wherever God is, the cherubim are always with him, and they magnify the glory of God. And since Satan was the anointed cherub, we can absolutely infer that he was in a special position unlike anyone else in heaven. As he is described here in this text, he was probably the number two being in all of heaven. But there eventually came a time when being number two wasn't satisfying enough. He had to be number one. So how in the world could someone have all the honor, glory, beauty, perfection, and wisdom of Satan and be so close to God and then become evil? The answer is pride. Pride is what led to Satan's downfall. We see this in verse 17 of Ezekiel chapter 28. That's what led to his pride. Your beauty was lifted up because of, or excuse me, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. He became so full of himself and so full of his own beauty. Can you imagine what he might have been thinking? I am the model of perfection. I'm the best and there's no one like me. I'm the most beautiful and wisest in all of creation, but I want more than this. And I deserve more than this. I want to be in charge. I'm tired of being number two. I will be number one. All of these kinds of thoughts just fuel the flames of pride. How did God respond to this? He threw Satan out of heaven. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Revelation chapter 12 says, Satan and the angels who were loyal to him, all the angels that were loyal to him are now known as demons. They were all thrown out of heaven down to the earth. Now for someone who's full of pride, what would that have been like? Can you imagine? It would have been pretty humiliating, right? You just got thrown out of heaven with all your buddies. You were just put in your, in your place. How would that make you feel? I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty upset. And that's exactly what the Bible says about Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, it says he is full of anger because he knows his time is short. So in heaven, Satan was known as Lucifer, the morning star, the most beautiful, perfect, and anointed cherub in all of creation. And now that he's thrown out of heaven, he goes from being Lucifer to being Satan, which literally means adversary or enemy of God. So while Satan is a very fa angry fallen angel, he is still a created being, which means he has limitations. He is not God. Do you hear me? He is not God. While the Bible refers to him as God of this world, that is God with a little g. He is not God with a big G. Not at all. He is not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent, nor is he omniscient. He is God's enemy, but he is not God's equal. He is not God's equal. God is omnipresent, meaning he is pre present everywhere all at the same time. Let that one sink in. That just blows your mind, doesn't it? 
God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. And God is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. You see, Satan is none of these. He is a created being, and therefore he has limitations. We can turn to the book of Job to understand this more, because in Job chapter 1, God asks Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answers God with this in verse 7. He says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth in it, which means Satan has a physical position in the earth. He can change destinations, but he is not everywhere all at once like God. Satan has great power, but he is not all-powerful. In Job chapter 1, he sought God's permission to inflict harm on Job. In Luke chapter 22, we learn that Satan asked permission to sift each of the disciples like wheat. If you were all-powerful, you don't need permission from anyone to do anything. Also, James chapter 4, verse 7 says, we are to resist the devil and he will flee, which means we absolutely have the power to resist him. If you were all powerful, who could resist you, right? He's not. Jesus said, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand, meaning if you're a child of God, no one can take that away from you, not even Satan himself. I was thinking about that this morning and what came to mind is Romans chapter 8. I just want to read this to you as a great reminder. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Chapter 8, verse 35. Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including Satan, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You ought to bookmark that. You ought to memorize that. And you can tell Satan that right to his face. Right? It's time we wake up, children of God. You have the power within you because you have Jesus' spirit within you. Now, if you read Revelation 20, you'll notice that it only took one angel to bind Satan. One. One angel. So there's no way he's all-powerful. The truth is, Satan's power is limited. As children of God, Satan has no power over us except for what we give him. Every time we give into temptation, we give him power. Every time we worry, we give him power. Every time we doubt, we give him power. Every time we fear, we give him power. Every time we hold on to unforgiveness, we give him power. Every time we sin, we give him power. Every time we do something or say something contrary to God's word, we give him power. So stop giving him power, child of God. Satan has no power over you except for what you allow him to have because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Anyone else excited today? Come on. Now, if we once again look at the book of Job, we can see that Satan is also not all-knowing. He's not. Satan assumed that the reason Job feared God was because of the protection that God provided for Job and for his property and for his home. Satan told God that if he were to remove this protection by taking away everything that Job had, that Job would curse him to his face. If you read the book of Job, you'll find that didn't happen. 
you'll find that Satan was absolutely and completely wrong. And we can easily conclude from that that Satan is not all-knowing. Because if you were all-knowing, you would never be wrong, right? Satan is a created being, and therefore, he has limitations. He cannot be everywhere all at once. He is not all-powerful, and he is certainly not all-knowing. But none of this means he is weak. None of this means he is weak. Therefore, we can never underestimate him. He is a spiritual being that operates in the supernatural. Paul tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that we are to stay alert, that we are to watch out for our great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Aaron, I bet you didn't know that was in here, did you, when you and I were talking about that this morning, right? We have to be alert, meaning we have to be on our guard. We can never underestimate our enemy. He's not out to just inflict harm on you. He's not out to just inconvenience you. He's out to devour you. He wants to destroy you. That's how serious he considers his mission. So never underestimate him. Even though he is ultimately a defeated enemy, he remains a real and formidable threat for all of us until Jesus returns. So now that we've clearly established who Satan is and who he is not, as well as what he cannot do, let's talk about what he can do, what tactics he uses so we can better be prepared on how to defeat these tactics. Now, I can't possibly cover all of Satan's tactics in the time we have remaining today, but what I want to do is I want to focus on the top six tactics that I believe that he displays. And one way for us to better understand the tactics that Satan uses is simply by knowing the various names that are referred to him in the Bible. For example, in Genesis 3, 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, and Revelation 12, 9, Satan is referred to as a serpent. What are some characteristics of a serpent? Anyone? They slither, okay. Means they're sneaky. You can't really discover them all that easy. Yep, what else? Slimy. Poisonous, Poisonous. okay. They attack without you seeing, yep. They can injure you. Yeah. They make you cringe. Yeah, they make me cringe. I don't like them. I hate snakes. They're skillful. They're clever. They're crafty, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. That's on the front of your bulletin. All of these characters, characteristics lend themselves very well to our enemy's first tactic and what could arguably be his most prevalent, deception. Deception. In Genesis, we read how Satan, as a serpent, laid a snare. In other words, he laid a trap for Adam and Eve. He did that by invoking God's name and using God's words. And how did he start this discussion with, with Eve? Do you remember? Doubt, yeah. He didn't make a statement. What did he do? He asked a question. He said, did God really say? That's, what he, that's how he started it. How many times has he do, do that, does that in your mind? Did God really say that? Is that really what the Bible says? He does that all the time. This is important for us to understand. He lays a snare or a trap by causing doubt. He puts all the focus where? On the tree that held the fruit that both Adam and Eve were told not to eat from. 
He simply made the temptation very appealing. Again, he's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. He's not just any deceiver. He's a liar. Jesus called him the father of lies and that there was no truth in him. He may use some truth to deceive, but you can always count on him to mix that truth with a lie. There are so many ways that he can use deception. So many ways. The word says he disguises himself as an angel of light, which means he and his message can be very appealing. This easily explains why we see so many cults and so many religions who claim to have heard or seen a revelation from God, when in reality, it was just Satan disguised as an angel of light. Be wary of that. The Bible warns us there's going to be more and more people that are going to say, oh, I had this dream. I heard this. God told me this. Yeah, really? Go check the Bible. Because if it conflicts with the word of God, they're false, period. A lot of deception out there today. When we read the parable of the wheat and the tares, we see that it was the devil who's the one who sowed the tares among the wheat. The wheat represent the children of God, believers. While the tares represent what? Children of the devil, unbelievers. So Satan places false believers and teachers in the world for the sole purpose of deceiving and leading people astray. Jesus warns us that there are wolves in sheep's clothing, which is just another form of the same tactic that he uses, deception. Satan can make lies look like the truth the same way he can make unbelievers look like believers because he's a master of deception. And he's also an imitator. He's an imitator. He is no longer an angel of light, yet he disguises himself as one. He is not the lion of Judah like Jesus, but he prowls around like a lion. He's not the lion. He prowls around like a lion. He is not Christ, yet he will appear to be like Christ when he comes as the Antichrist. And he can take on many forms. If you read the Bible, think about all the different forms that Jesus took. You read about him in Genesis as what? The serpent. You read about him in Revelation as what? The dragon. And he can take on many forms, but they all are just an imitation with an intent to deceive. When the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man of sin, the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, the word says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, that he will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit signs, counterfeit miracles, and he will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, false messiahs and false prophets will rise up to perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. So Satan is very capable of performing signs and wonders. But they are always intended to deceive and draw the attention away from God. I want you to know this because we can't get caught up in all this woo, supernatural stuff that's coming around, right? You can't get caught up on that because Satan can counterfeit it very easily. Very easily. He is a counterfeit. He's an imitation. He's a deceiver. And unfortunately, he's very good at it. We must be aware of Satan's number one tactic, deception. His second tactic is distraction. Not only is Satan a master deceiver, he is also a master distractor. 
Satan even had the audacity of trying to distract Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan is referred to as the tempter. Temptation is all about being distracted from your mission or being distracted from what you should be doing. He offered Jesus worldly wealth and power if Jesus would just fall down and worship him, right? That's what he wants. And Jesus responded with, it is written. It is written. He responded with the word of God. Jesus would not yield to temptation. He would not even entertain temptation, not even for a second. And herein lies one of Satan's chief strategies of distraction. Listen to me. Distract mankind from opening, reading, and studying the word of God. That's one of Satan's chief strategies right there. Keep mankind from opening the word of God and reading it, studying it, and understanding it for themselves. No, because it's easier to sit around and listen to someone else talk about what the word of God says. That's how you can be deceived. We've said from the very beginning in this church, we want you in your Bibles. We do everything we can to try to get you in the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you. We've said it over and over and over again about being a Berean. Some of you don't know what a Berean is. If you look in the Bible and you study that, Bereans were people who listened to the word of God. Then they went and they made sure that what they heard actually aligned with the word of God. It's what I want you guys to do. It's what all of us should do. Satan knows the word of God holds the truth. And the truth is what sets people free. But Satan wants us all in bondage. I walked out of the house today. I meant to go in the garage and grab a big chain link, uh, a chain I was going to bring in because I thought it'd be a great illustration. So just imagine for a minute that I had one in my hand. Okay, just imagine it. Satan wants you in bondage. But if he came up to you and just took that chain and put it over your neck, you'd be like, no, get off of me. That's not how he operates, is it? He comes at you like one link at a time. I'll just put this here. I'll just put that there. Before you know it, these chains start to get linked together. And you just keep getting more and more deceived by all the stuff he's doing. Before you know it, it's wrapped around you. You see, Jesus has already come and taken all that away. All that bondage is gone by what he did on the cross. You don't have to be in bondage to what Satan is peddling. You don't have to do that. Now, let me just name a few of the devices of distraction that Satan chooses to use. Busyness. He will overwhelm us with busyness. All these to-dos on top of to-dos just keep us running ragged. Oh, he loves that. Or the TV. The TV can be a portal of evil right in your home. And he will absolutely take advantage of it. To understand the power of entertainment, whether it's TV or movies, if you underestimate this, it's a serious miscalculation of our enemy's ability to distract and deceive. TV advertisers spend millions and millions of dollars on these 30, 45, or 60-second ads. Why do they do that? Because they know it works. They know it works because they'll get us to spend money, right, on things we really don't need with money we really don't have, don't they? Think about all the time that accumulates from all those minutes, hours, and months, and even years of watching things that do not honor God. Think about what that does to you cumulatively. To think that watching adultery, fornication, and violence while listening to filthy language will not affect you is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. This is just how Satan operates. Distract us with entertainment. He loves to make evil look good. Video games, 
an alternate and fake reality where we are numb to the real reality going on all around us. Smartphones, iPads, computers, many of us are slaves to these devices, aren't we? Try going through your day without looking at your iPhone one time and see how that works out for you. It's pretty difficult, isn't it? Email, chat, Facebook, whatever social media platform you desire, the world has it just for you. Satan wants us busy wasting our time in and on activities and devices and entertainment that shield us from the real reality, especially the Word of God. To say you don't have time to engage with the Word of God, whether it's reading, studying, or listening to the Word of God, you know what that simply means? It simply means, possibly, that you are too distracted from everything else. You're too distracted with everything else. What can be more important than the truth? What can be more important than spending time with your creator and hearing him speak? You've got time to eat, don't you? What happens if you don't eat? You starve. Your body starts going crazy, right? Your stomach starts growling. You start maybe getting headaches. So you eat, don't you? It's the same thing spiritually. Because what happens when you don't read the word of God, you don't get into it, you're starving yourself spiritually. Deep down, you know the answer to that question, right? That whole question about not spending time in God's word, you know the answer to that. What can be more important? Satan wants you distracted so you won't be effective for the kingdom of God. He wants you thinking it doesn't matter what you do right now because there's plenty of time to clean up your life later. So just sin now, repent later. That's what Satan will tell you. Yeah, right, exactly. No thanks. Right on, brother. That's what I'm talking about. You don't get caught up in that. Our lives are but a vapor, and we don't know how long we're going to be on this earth. Satan loves to keep us distracted from the important while we chase everything that appears urgent. Some of you from discipleship might remember the urgent over the important. Remember that, Mark? I see you nodding your head. No, or Satan will distract us through the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, or the pride of life. Sadly, our own government uses this distracting tactic all the time. Look over there while I'm doing this over here. Right? It's the classic bait and switch that our enemy is a master at, and he wants you distracted. Now, his third tactic is discouragement. Discouragement. All Satan really needs to do is to plant the right catastrophe at the right moment in your life to bring on discouragement. You finally decide to get your finances in order and begin to live within your means. Or maybe you finally decide, I'm, I'm going to start tithing. And guess what happens? Bam! Your washing machine breaks down. Your car stops running. Some other big thing happens that costs you a lot of money. It could be the perfectly timed stab in the back where someone does or says something to you that knocks any wind that you have right out of your sails. It could be that you make a silly mistake and then the voices of accusation come against you. Like, what were you thinking? Why would you do such a stupid thing? The Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And he can discourage you in a moment if you listen to these accusations. It could be that you get sick or you get hurt or a loved one gets sick or gets hurt. 
Did you know that Satan has the power to inflict sickness and disease? Did you know that? We see this in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, when Luke talks about how Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil. They were under the tyranny of the devil. In Luke 13, we learn of a woman that was crippled by Satan for 18 years. She was bent over and could not stand up straight at all. Now, this doesn't mean that every time someone gets sick or has a disease that we can blame it on Satan. Because frankly, sometimes that can be our own fault based on our own choices. Or it could be that God's using that somehow in that person's life, just like Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know. But Satan absolutely has the power to inflict sickness and disease. And what a powerful weapon to cause discouragement right there. Satan wants us always seeing our problems and our challenges and our trials as bigger than anything else. And he does this because if he he keeps our eyes focused on the size of our problem, then we'll never be able to see. We'll be blind to the size of our God who's bigger than our problems. Now, another tactic the enemy uses is discontentment. Discontentment. Oh, he's incredibly good at this one. If only I had this. If only I had that. If only, if only, if only. It's an endless cycle of self-satisfaction at the expense of being content with the Lord God himself. He is all we really need. God is all we really need, and Satan knows it. But to get us to believe that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence is what he loves to do. His fifth tactic is division. Division. Oh, he takes special delight in this one. It's a classic one he uses to try and bring down the church right here. Don't think he's good at it? Listen to this. According to the Center for Study of Global Christianity, there are more than 200 Christian denominations in the U.S., and a staggering 45,000 denominations worldwide. That's incredible, isn't it? Think about the division in God's bride, in his church. There's that many schisms. But nothing neutralizes this tactic faster than unity. Unity, which is why we focus so much on this church, on being unified. United in our mission. For Jesus, family, fellowship. We want to see people introduced to the love of Jesus and then passionately pursue him for the rest of their lives as they grow in him. We want to see them thrive in a family of believers who will love them, support them, and encourage them. There is no room for division here. Amen? We can tell Satan to go pack him because there's no room for it here. We must all keep our eyes on Jesus and may that focus protect our unity. The biggest challenge uh, with the tactic that I'm going to talk about next is the illusion that it can't happen. Defection. It's the illusion that it can never happen to a believer. That's one of the biggest challenges right here. Because that's exactly what our enemy wants us to think. But the Bible tells us otherwise. It can happen. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to what? Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Oh, how much doctrines of demons do we see today? We got it right here in Missoula. 
I'm not going to call it out because I'm not just not going to do that. I, again, that goes back to this whole idea that I said last week about pointing fingers and getting this name calling going on. Oh, look at you. Look at me. Look at you. No, we're not going to do that. I'm just saying you've got people that will depart from the faith. I'm not going to get into the theological debate today on who those are that depart from the faith because I've already covered it in previous messages this year. I've already talked about it. All I will say is that you cannot fall away from something you don't already have. Think about that. You can't fall away from something you don't already have. Satan wants us to give up. He doesn't want us to endure. He doesn't want us to abide in Jesus. He is all about defection. He's the perfect example of what pride can do. He defected himself. But we know the word of God gives us ample warning to do otherwise. We are to endure. We are to persevere. We are to abide. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief, meaning Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his mission. Steal, kill, and destroy. And he'll use any and every tactic available to him to ensure that this happens. He'll use deception. He'll use distraction. He'll use discouragement. He'll use discontentment. He'll use division. And he'll even use defection. But here's the good news. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 reminds us that Jesus disarmed Satan and all of his minions when he sacrificed his life for ours on the cross. He nailed all of our sins on the cross. This is what ensures our victory right here. We need never to walk in defeat. We need to know our enemy, but we need to know our Savior even more because he's the key to our victory. So while our enemy is disarmed because of Jesus, you and I have an entire arsenal of weapons to armor up with. That's what the name of the message is next week, Armor Up. And we're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk about how to fight and win in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are greater than who's in the world right now. We know that the God of this world with a little g runs around to and fro wreaking havoc, but we thank you that we've got ultimate victory in you. Lord, help us to be children of God who walk in victory. Help us to recognize these tactics that the enemy throws on us every day. And Lord, that we can um, find the peace and the joy that only you can offer and that we can send him packing. Your word tells us so clearly that if we resist him, he will flee. It's a promise. So I pray, Lord God, if there's anyone here that is under bondage right now in some form of tactic that the enemy is using, that you would set them free, Lord, that you would heal them in Jesus' name if it's sickness or disease, if it's sin they're trapped in, Lord, that you'd help them to see the way out. Your word tells us that no temptation has seized you except what's common to man, but God is faithful. He will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just understand the, the um, promises of God that are right there for us, Lord. If we'll just open the word of God and read it and study it and make it part of our daily routine. Lord, we can walk in victory because of you. If there's anyone here, Lord, who's never made the decision to follow you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you draw them to you, that you'd woo them to you right now to make that decision, Lord. So they don't have to be children of the devil. They can be children of the light. We thank you for the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you need prayer today or you've got something on your mind that you want to talk about or you want to bring forward, I'd be happy to pray with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for week two of Spiritual Boot Camp. I look forward to talking to you next week about how to armor up. Have a good week.